Hey friends. Welcome to the Field Guide to Particle Physics. This is your informal guide to the subatomic ecosystem that we're all immersed in. Today we are talking about the antiproton. Antiparticles are everywhere. They're just a part of life. The electron has its positron partner. Muons and antimuons are both routinely created in the upper atmosphere. In fact, they're so familiar that we often just call them mu plus or mu minus. The antiparticle nature of mu plus just isn't that big a deal. If you've been paying attention to our series, you know that we've talked about antiparticles quite a bit, at least in passing. Up and down quarks sometimes associate with anti-up and anti-down quarks to form pions, and other mesons, like kaons, form similar quark-antiquark pairs. It's kind of fun to see composite particles made up from other particles and antiparticles. The neutral pion, for example, is a bound state of a particle-antiparticle partner, not unlike positronium, where an electron and a positron orbit each other kind of like an atom. Of course, all these composite particles are unstable. Arguably, what separates antimatter from antiparticles is finding a composite particle that is stable, or at least pretty long-lived, something that looks and behaves like ordinary matter that we experience every day, something like atoms. Enter the antiproton. Just like the proton, the antiproton is a tiny bag of subnuclear goo. Virtual pions and gluons and other kind of quantum effect stuff are all dressed up in the antiproton package around three valence antiquarks. That's two anti-up quarks and one anti-down quark. The antiproton looks virtually identical to the proton, except perhaps that it has a negative electric charge. Like the proton, the antiproton has a mass of about 931 MeV. In fact, its difference from the proton's mass has been measured, and at present it looks like they're the same up to less than one part in a million. In fact, everything we measure from the antiproton seems to line up exactly with the proton. The magnetic moment, a measure of the little magnetic dipole field generated by the antiproton, still appears to be equal and opposite of that of the proton. And yes, the negatively charged antiproton can pick up a positively charged positron and form an atom, like hydrogen. You know, anti-hydrogen. Anti-hydrogen has been studied and confirmed to look and behave exactly like hydrogen does. The positron energy levels in these anti-atoms and the associated electromagnetic spectra are all the same. Even the fancy hyperfine splitting of these energy levels in magnetic fields have been experimentally shown to be identical with those of ordinary hydrogen, at least up to experimental precision. By all observations so far, the proton appears to be a stable particle. If the proton did decay, it would be big news and a boon for folks looking to study physics beyond the standard model. The antiproton, so far as we can tell, is also stable, which is good. Our theory is self-consistent, but it does present the question, if they don't decay, where are all the antiprotons in nature? Nobody knows why there's so little antimatter in the universe, but there definitely is some. Antiprotons impinge upon the Earth's upper atmosphere all the time. 
They're secondary cosmic rays that currently appear to be associated with some super high energy protons smashing into the gas and other materials sitting in between the stars in our own galaxy. And we can make them here on Earth too. The Alpha experiment at CERN has an antiproton source made by smashing protons into iridium. The Tevatron at Fermilab in Chicago had an antiproton source that used nickel instead. The Tevatron was an intriguing particle accelerator in that, unlike the LHC, which collided protons together, the Tevatron collided protons against antiprotons to give just a little extra boost in energy from those quark-antiquark annihilations uh, when the two composite particles collided. The fact that there is so much more matter in the universe than antimatter means that antimatter is simply going to annihilate against any matter that it runs into. But how protons and antiprotons annihilate is kind of a complicated issue. Electrons and positrons annihilate cleanly into a pair of gamma rays. The antiproton and the proton do not cleanly annihilate. There is no easy, super clean signal. They're composite particles. Worse, they're both really messy composite particles. Typically, what happens when a proton meets an antiproton is that one of those quarks meets up with one of the antiquarks and interacts from there. All kinds of particles can come out, like pions, more protons, and other emissions from all that subnuclear goo. The details all depend on how quickly those particles are moving when they meet each other. If they're moving really slowly, their quantum clouds of subnuclear goo might overlap and a pion could be exchanged. But if they're moving really quickly, like they were at the Tevatron, those antiquarks who carry the highest fraction of the antiproton's momentum will collide with the quarks in the proton, and all kinds of things can and have come out, like the top quark, which was discovered there in 1995. But that's another story for another time. This has been an installment of the Field Guide to Particle Physics, a copyrighted production of the Poseidon Institute. We're in our third season, and it's all about antimatter. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode interesting, fascinating, pleasantly confusing, or even just useful, please make sure to subscribe for more and pass it around. For a full, free online copy of the Field Guide, please visit our website at Poseidon.org or follow the Poseidon Institute on Instagram. At the Poseidon Institute, we are on a mission to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. Come learn with us. <laughs>